Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org. All right. Hey, good morning, Horizon. My name is Jared. I'm the campus pastor from Lodi. It's been a little while, but it's good to be with you this morning. Now, you may not know it, but Kevin, Tim, and all the elders are gone this weekend. And I was feeling pretty good about that until about five minutes ago when Kevin texted me and said that they all just sat down together to watch the live stream. So no pressure, right? Hi, guys. Hi. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Well, um, I hope you brought your Bibles today because we are going to be going through a classic Old Testament story. And if you guys know me, you know how much I just love the Old Testament. I love going back to these stories that I learned in Sunday school and then reading them as adults because I consistently discover that there's so much more going on than what I remember from those Sunday school classes of my childhood. So today we're going to read the story about the first family, the first family of all time. And I wish I could show you a photo of them, but obviously they didn't, they didn't have cameras back in the ancient Near East, and maybe that's a good thing, because lots of times our family photos don't always turn out like we think they're going to. In fact, you may not know this, but there is a whole website dedicated to awkward family photos, and it is glorious. It is absolutely glorious, and I pulled a few gems that I want to share with you this morning. Yes, let's take a look. Oh my, like I don't know who thought of that one, but uh, that is definitely awkward on many, many levels. Uh, we got another one here, let's take a look. Yes, that re- that's actually young Doug Matthews right there. Um, I wish I could pull off that handlebar mustache, I totally would. Okay, we've got some more. Um, that, that's going to leave the kids with nightmares. If you, if you hung that on your wall in your home, Uh, You might be a serial killer. Okay, we've got a few more. I'm not even sure what to say, uh, except that all five children are in counseling, and it's probably probably a good thing. I think we have one, one last one. Now, this one's special because if you look real closely, that individual in the back is me. Yep. Yep, I was about 16 or 17 in that photo, and I'm not sure why I thought bleaching all my hair would be a good idea, but this is the photo that made it into the church directory. And so for years, my folks had to answer, oh, that's your son. Yes, that, that's me. But today we're going to be looking at the story of Cain and Abel, and yes, it is the story of the first family. It's also a story of two brothers, and it's a story of jealousy. It's a story of the first murder. It's the story of a sojourner, a wanderer, and his journey east. And it's the story of God's grace and mercy. Now, most of us here, we've probably been through Sunday school at some point, or maybe you've read this story at least a few times, but this morning we're going to walk through it again. And as we walk through this story this morning, my, my goal throughout this story is for you to avoid the temptation to think of yourself as Abel, 
the brother Abel, to put yourself into the victim's shoes and to grab onto that label as the innocent one. Because I think the moment that we fail to step into the shoes of Cain, to recognize our own struggles with pride and jealousy, and to see within ourselves the potential for great harm, that's the moment we begin to lose the true power of this story. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read it in its entirety, and it's, it's 16 full verses from Genesis 4, and then we'll go back and unpack it together a little bit slowly. But this is Genesis 4, um, verse 1 through 16. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept the flocks and Cain worked the soil and in the course of time Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops to you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. A fabulous Old Testament story, a story of the first family. And right off the bat, I can share some good news with you. The first family was dysfunctional. (laughs) And this is good news, especially with Thanksgiving around the corner. I know some of us are a little bit nervous bringing everybody together. But no matter how messy your family gatherings get, take heart. The first family was probably more dysfunctional than yours. So let's go back and unpack this together. We'll start back at verse 1. We'll walk through the scriptures. This is what it says. It said, Adam made love to his wife Eve. Literally, the Hebrew there is the word no. It says, Adam knew Eve. He knew her. And she became pregnant. And she gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, I just want you to try to imagine what it would have been like to be Eve in this moment. Like as adults, somewhere along the line, 
we're taught where babies come from. <laughs> My son Jake, he's seven, and he's been asking me, uh, and he kind of wants more details than I'm ready to give him. Uh, but so I just tell him, you know, babies are a blessing from God, and let's move on. Um, but Eve, she would have had no one to tell her. Nobody had gone through this before. There was no concept of how this process would work. Literally, this was the first child in human history. And so her words here are fascinating to me because she says, it is with the help of Yahweh that I have brought forth a man. Literally, she says, an Adam, an Adam, another human, just like my husband Adam. And that's what Cain's name in Hebrew means. It means brought forth. Without any guidance, Eve makes the connection that all life is a gift from God, a miracle worth celebrating. And so she names Cain brought forth. And then she has this other son, Abel, which she names him Abel. It means breath or vapor. We're not really sure why she gave him that name. Some said that maybe this is a commentary on the breath of life breathed into our children, or others have suggested that this speaks to the fragility of life, that we are but a vapor. One idea that I find intriguing is that throughout this story, in fact, throughout all of the Bible, Abel never actually has any spoken words. There's no recorded words of this brother, and yet his life manages to tell us a story of faithfulness that lasts through all of human history. And I think perhaps that's the breath behind his name. But we're not really sure. So let's look at verses 2 through 5. We'll keep unpacking this together. It says, Abel kept the flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought forth some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And I think there's, there's some interesting things we can pull out of these three verses, because we learn that Cain worked the soil, and Abel kept the flocks. In other words, one was a farmer, and one was a shepherd. Now, as a farmer, a farmer is settled, a farmer's chosen a piece of land and settled there because he's decided that this land can support his crops. And he has a sense of boundaries of the land. The land that he lives on and farms on is his land. But a shepherd is nomadic. A shepherd goes wherever there is food for his flock. A shepherd wanders from place to place. A, a shepherd doesn't have a strong sense of boundaries because he sees all land as a possible spot for him to stop and feed his flock. And so in our story, we have this farmer and this shepherd, and then for some unknown reason, the Bible doesn't tell us, at an unknown time, they come to bring an offering to God. Now, this story takes place very early in the course of human history. There's, there's no Mosaic law yet. Moses is still thousands of years away from being born. So there's no set of rules for how these offerings are to take place. But the scriptures do tell us that Abel brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock, while Cain brought some of the fruits of his soil. And so as we unpack this story, we realize that we get a glimpse of the heart of each brother. We see that the real issue here about God's favor and what God chooses to accept has to do with the heart in which the gifts 
were given. And this is a truth throughout Scripture that the nature of the gift is far less important than the integrity of the giver. We could look to the New Testament with the story of the widow's might. And the widow has very little, but she gives it, and Jesus commends her and says, look, she gave of her all. Right? The, the, the amount of the gift is far less important than the heart in which it's given. And I want us to stop throughout this story and, and keep forcing ourselves into the shoes of Cain. To, to ask ourselves, has there been moments in our lives where the gifts that we gave to the Lord weren't really given with the right heart? Where we've said to God, God, this, this is the best I can do right now. But in our heart, we knew that that wasn't true. See, I'm convinced that it doesn't take much for us as humans to fall into a place of entitlement. To start to think that the world really does evolve around us, our immediate needs and, and our desires. And I, I have an example of this. Just last week, I was driving down the, the road, and KFBK had this story about an internet outage in Marin County. right? And this is what the, the news article came out later. It says, we can't fix the internet. Authorities beg residents not to call 911 during an infinity outage. So basically what happened in Marin County, they had a big storm. The internet went down, and 911 got flooded with calls. People lost their minds. They didn't have internet. They didn't know what to do. So they, they started calling 911 so much that they had to say, stop it, guys. This is for actual emergencies. You know, I just think it's easy for us to fall into this place where it becomes all about us and our needs and, and my world and my internet's down. And, ah! We just freak out about these things where unconsciously we take this posture where we say to God, listen, you really should be happy with whatever I give you, Lord. But that is precisely why God wants us to be givers. Because it, it's through the act of giving that we, we're forced to this place where we have to think about the needs and wants of someone else. And so in this verse, we see that God favors Abel's offering over Cain, and Cain becomes angry, and his face is downcast, and Cain takes this rejection personally. But I think there's a lesson here because it was really only favor that Cain misses out on. God hasn't judged Cain. He hasn't condemned Cain. There's no consequences for Cain yet. And I think we need to remember that sometimes the rejection of the gift is not the same as the rejection of the giver. And that's actually good news because today I've told us we need to be in the shoes of Cain. And so as humans, we have to recognize there's going to be moments where we're just not giving God our whole hearts, our first fruits, where what we're bringing him is kind of lacking. And I don't think God just dismisses us and sends us out in that moment, but he will tell us, God, hey, this, this gift, this gift is a little bit lacking. So Cain tried. He did bring an offering, but God was teaching humanity a lesson. He was telling us that he wants more than a dollar store gift card with a Subway gift certificate stuck in there. Like, he was trying to illustrate something for us. And, and I got another example, and I think you guys, I think you guys are going to really like this example. So this is from 2009, our Secretary of State at the time, Hillary Clinton. She met with the Ministry of Affairs for Russia. His name is Sergei Lavrov. And she brought a gift 
She brought an offering, a gift to this meeting. And it was something that she actually had made for this moment. It was a large red button with the word reset on it, written in English and in Russian. It was supposed to symbolize a reset between the tensions that Moscow and Washington were having. But the problem was, she didn't get her Russian right. And so the word she printed on this thing actually meant overloaded. Now, the, the minister of affairs from Russia was very polite, and he accepted this gift. I'm sure it went straight into the trash, but you'd think if you are the Secretary of State for the United States, you would get your word right. <laughs> now, my point here is that what we give to God matters, right? What we give to God matters. And sometimes what we bring him just isn't our best. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about our hearts, Because that's what God really cares about. God calls Cain out for the posture of his heart. And Cain has this opportunity to respond with repentance and humility. But instead he responds with anger. And he reveals the true nature of his heart when it says that his face is downcast. And so God sees Cain's struggle and he sees Cain's heart. And out of love, God steps in. To speak to Cain. And in the next, next verse it says this. says, the Lord spoke to Cain. He said, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, then sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have you. But you must rule over it. You see, I, I see God giving Cain a gentle but powerful reminder of who his real enemy is. Abel, his brother, is not his enemy. And quite frankly, we spend too much time as brothers and sisters in Christ arguing and fighting with other brothers and sisters. They're not our enemies. Who is Cain's real enemy? What is our real enemy? Sin. Sin is our enemy. Abel wasn't Cain's enemy. And even though I'm sure Cain felt like his brother was, sometimes it's just so much easier to blame someone else when things go wrong. And that's the awful reality of family. That our family tends to be the ones that get the brunt of our blame. Family are the easiest to blame. They're the closest to us. We see them all the time. And so when there's this moment that comes up and we want to play the blame game, they make the best targets. Peter even warns us of this in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The Lord knows that sin is at work in Cain's heart, and he warns Cain out of love, do what is right. He warns Cain, rule over this, master your sin, because sin waits for our weakest moments to attack us. And Cain gives birth to this dark desire of his heart. Verse 8, it says, Cain says to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. And then his famous line, am I my brother's keeper? Cain's anger blossomed into hate. And out of his hatred came Abel's death. 
Death is the nature of sin. Sin brings forth death. Just like in the garden in the chapter before where there was no sin, there was no death. All things lived in peace. And then the sin of Adam and the sin of Eve brought death into the world. And I think that that is perhaps the greatest tragedy of this story is that Adam and Eve, they didn't have to wait until their own deaths to taste the devastating effect of their rebellion in the garden. They had to endure the death of their youngest son and the exile of their firstborn. Sin brought this tragedy to a world that not that long ago was perfect. And the tragedy is loss of life. And that, that is something worth getting mad about. Like just a few weeks ago, Tim did a sermon on this entitled The Love and Hate of God. And I think there's few things in this, this world worthy of hating. But Tim unpacked for us that there are times and things that even God hates. I think this world has too much hate in it. I'm tired of seeing example after example of people hating people or people hating the opinions of people or people hating themselves. None of those things are worthy of hatred. But if we must hate, let us hate sin. Let us learn to have the mind of Christ and the heart of God. Because I believe above all things, there's nothing worth hating more than sin itself. And that is the uncomfortable truth that we must learn to hate sin. But hating sin goes against our nature. The author of Hebrews warns us and says, sin is fun for a season. And then Solomon in Proverbs, he says, listen, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. And that's exactly what's happened in this story of two brothers, that sin has once again brought death into the world. And in verse 9, God speaks to Cain, and now for the fourth time in this story, he asks Cain a question. So let me tell you a secret about God that you may, you may have already figured out, but God is unable to ask a question that he doesn't already know the answer to, because he's God. He knows everything. So when he's asking a question, he's asking it for our benefit. And in this case, he's asking it for Cain's own good, not his. God knows the answer, but he wants to see, what will Cain do? Will he tell the truth? Will he lie? Will he own up to his sin? Or will he downplay what he's done? And so God asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain replies with this famous line, am I my brother's keeper. Now this response is so crafty that I have to wonder if Cain didn't plan it out ahead of time. By answering God's question with the question, Cain rhetorically dismisses the accusations being raised while limiting the scope of his own responsibility. Now there is further irony in his words because as we read through scripture, we realize that yes, in fact, we are our brother's keepers. That this is true throughout the Old Testament. And Hebrew law makes it clear that community responsibility takes priority over individual preference or rights. It's even true in the New Testament. Apostle Paul writes it this way. He says, look, there's neither Jew 
or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one. You are one in Christ Jesus. Guys, that's what family is supposed to look like. That's what it's supposed to mean to be a family, to look out for the needs of someone else, to be, in fact, your brother's keeper. That's what it means to be a brother. And how can you call someone brother and not put their needs in front of your own? You can't. And so at this point, Cain has pushed God too far. And in God's response, we hear his wrath, but I think we also hear his mercy. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse, and you'll be driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops to you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And the Lord said, Abel's blood, his blood gain, it cries out to me from the ground. Now think about what God is saying. That Abel's blood is able to speak, that it's able to cry out. That in this story of two brothers, where Abel never speaks a single word, where there's nothing ever recorded of what he said anywhere in the Bible, his very blood tells a story, echoes a testimony of his life throughout the ages. That even now, thousands of years later, in Galt, California, we are recounting and celebrating the kind of life that Abel lived. That's how strong his testimony was. And he never said a word. And this is true for all of us. We never know what kind of testimony, what kind of impact we will have on those around us. We will never know how many we influence for the better or for the worse because of how we live our lives. Abel's testimony is a reminder of the value of life and the power of a life lived well. One of my favorite theologians, St. Francis of Assisi, he said it this way. He said, preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. Like maybe you've heard that before. Sometimes I hear it said this way. You may be the only Bible someone reads. Right? The point is that our actions speak louder than our words. That our lives, how we live them, is a testimony of our faith to all of those around us. And Abel is such a great example of this because his heart for the Lord has been celebrated throughout generations. And I'm not even the first person to notice Abel's testimony. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11, she wrote this. She said, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to be righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith. Though he is dead, he still speaks. Right? I love it. Though he is dead, he still speaks. Our faithfulness to God, even in the small things, can speak loudly to the world around us. Now, I find it interesting, too, that God says that it was Abel's blood that spoke from the ground. Because I think there might be a parallel going on here between Adam's sin in Genesis 3, the chapter right before this. Now, it's easy when we read through Genesis to maybe think that this was the first death in Scripture. But it's actually not. This is the first murder in Scripture. The first death took place one chapter before. The first death came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. 
After they ate of the tree, they became aware of their nakedness and they tried to make clothes with leaves. But it didn't, it didn't work. They didn't do a good job because in verse 21 it says that the Lord God had to make garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothe them. Well, in order to make garments of skin, something had to die. So from the very beginning, God made it clear that the wages of sin are death. It's a universal law. Sin requires blood. And God said, now Abel's blood cries to me from the ground. And that word cries, cries, is a fascinating word in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's the word sa'ak. Sa'ak, and it means to cry out. And it's kind of a unique word in Hebrew because it's an onomatopoeia, which means that it's a word that sounds like it's meaning. And Hebrew is so guttural, you don't get a lot of these words in Hebrew that actually sound like something. Um, but sa'ak is meant to replicate the sound that we make when we hurt. So if you were to stub your toe, you would say, sa'ak! <laughs> It's an expression of pain. Uh, one, one commentator says it describes the ouch, right? But what's fascinating about this word in Hebrew is that it's also a question. It's a question asked throughout Scripture, and it's a question asked throughout our world, that everywhere that there is pain, either corporate or personal, there is this question. And the question is this, does God know? Does God see this pain? Is God aware of this sa'ak that's happening? And these are the questions that arise out of the pain of our world. Where is the justice? Who will come to our rescue? Do I suffer alone? And so Abel's blood from the ground cries out the sa'ak. God, do you hear this cry? Do you hear the blood from the ground crying out? And yes, God always hears the sa'ak of the oppressed. Later in Exodus, in the book uh, of Exodus, the Hebrew slaves, it uses this word again. It says they sa'ak, they cry out to God about their slavery. Oh Lord, do you hear us? And God says, yes, I hear your cries. I am aware of your pain. And I think this is a good reminder that God sees all the wrongs in our world, all the injustice of our messy planet. He sees it all. There is no pain too small. There is no sa'ak too soft for God to hear. And in his time and in his way, he brings justice. In this story, God delivers justice by sending Cain east. Now, as a reader, we're, we're left to decide our, for ourselves whether we think God's punishment was fair or not. But like everywhere else in Scripture, God proves that he has his own way of doing things. And in the next verse, Cain tells us exactly what he thinks about God's punishment. That's what it says in verse 13. says, Cain says to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, at first glance, it might seem like there's a little bit of repentance in Cain's words because he's recognizing that his punishment is more than just a relocation. 
It means being further away from the presence of God. But then Cain, in the same breath, states his true fear. Whoever finds me will kill me. He fears for his life. And I think something fascinating is being described in this moment as Cain is being sent east. Because the way east is the way away from the presence of God. You see, the Garden of Eden was west. Eden was the other direction. The place where God walked with man was this way. But Cain is being sent in the opposite direction, east. And so, if I could make a big takeaway from today's message, it would be this reminder. That our human nature is to walk away from God. Our natural compass is pointed east. But God's grace is always beckoning us home, telling us that there is another way. There is the way west. And that even though there are two ways in life, this way east and the way west, that God wants us to walk in his presence. Walk worthy. Walk in the spirit, it says in the New Testament. That the way of obedience is this way and the way of disobedience leads you in the other direction. We can do it God's way or we can do it our own way. We can walk towards the Lord or we can walk away from the Lord. C.S. Lewis, I love C.S. Lewis. He has this famous quote about hell that'll make you scratch your head a little bit. He says, the gates of hell are locked on the inside. Yes. Now, in other place, Lewis argues that hell in the end, that everyone in hell is there because they want to be. Yeah, I, I know. That sounds nuts, right? Like, who would want to be in hell? But his argument is this, that, that heaven is the place where God is, and that ultimately the presence of God is what motivates all of us to move in one of these two directions. That there will either be people who love God so much that they can't help but walk towards him, or by very nature there will be people who will be willing to do anything they can to get away from him. That there are those who will seek the Lord and those who will flee the Lord. I think that's an interesting way of looking at the afterlife. I'm still working on it, okay? But either way, I think both... C.S. Lewis and Cain, they would agree that there's this natural human desire in us to walk away from God. And when we read the story of Cain, we get a representation, a visual, visual representation of that truth, that sin separates us from the presence of the Lord. So we have just two final verses this morning, and I hope you see grace and mercy in them. Verse 15, the Lord responds to Cain, not so, Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Even in his judgment of Cain, God not only hears Cain's worries, but he answers them. And I think there's, there's lots of theories about what this mark was that Cain got on him. Um, most Bible guys I read think it was some kind of tattoo. My, my wife thinks it might be like a physical deformity or something. Um, there's some really crazy ancient traditions that said it was a horn that grew out of Cain's head and that like scared people away. But we don't know. We don't know what the mark of Cain was. But what we can be sure of is this, that the mark of Cain was a blessing. 
It was a blessing of protection and safety. God didn't have to mark Cain. He could have just left him to fend for himself. That's probably what I would have done, right? But instead, he shows him this last kindness. And I think that's true for all of us today. That the scriptures have warned us, and we know it, that all who have sinned have fallen short of the glory of God. And there's not a person in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, that is any less guilty than Cain himself. We fit squarely in his shoes. Our feet fit into the shoes of Cain. And there's something in us that pushes us east away from the Lord. But God has shed his blood. Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to this earth and shed his own blood. And the blood of Christ is louder than the blood of Abel. If you've been asleep, it's time to wake up. The blood of Christ is louder than the blood of Abel. And by the blood of Jesus, we are made new. We can now turn our stride and we can face the Lord again. We no longer need to live and walk in the way of the east, but we can rest with God in the way west. And so as we close today, let me suggest to you that, yes, this story of Cain and Abel is a story of the first family. It's a story of two brothers. It's a story of jealousy. It's a story of the first murderer. It's a story of a wanderer and his journey east. It's a story of God's grace and mercy. But above all of this, it's a story that calls us to return to a place of presence. That just like in Genesis, God desires to walk with us. Not just in the garden, but every single day. That we might know his voice. That we might experience his presence. And so my prayer for you today is that you will learn to hate sin, to call it out into your life, to stay vigilant and rooting out the areas where the enemy might be at work, that he might devour us no longer, that you might find rest in the Savior, rejoicing in God, a God who never stops showing grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it. And may our testimonies, the work of our lives, speak loudly to the unbelieving world around us, And may you find the presence of God made possible by the blood of Jesus. And may you walk with him, talk with him, and call him friend. Amen. Hey, guys, thanks so much for having me. I love being up here in Galt. Have a great week, and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for coming.